Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Jesus says the following, beginning in John chapter 14 and in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your, to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus also says, beginning in chapter 16 and in verse 4, but I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and will declare it to you. These words of Jesus are in the context of the final discourse that Jesus has with his eleven disciples before he uh, dies, is raised again, and ascends to the Father. And this discourse had begun in chapter 13, verse 31, and will go through uh, the end of his prayer with the Father in chapter 17, verse 26, and exists as a major section within chap John chapter 13 through 21, the last half of the book, pretty much, which focuses on this final uh, part of Jesus' life. Uh, it's one long discourse, and chapter divisions within uh, this section that we're considering in John 13, 31 through 17, 26 are completely irrelevant. 
Uh, and it's unparalleled in the synoptics in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's no discourse anything like this one. And Jesus gives these final words so they'll be ringing in the disciples' ears. It assures them and exhorts them based on what's about to take place. Jesus is really preparing his disciples for his death, for his resurrection, and for the commission of the work they're going to do as a result of those events. And so he is speaking to the 11 disciples. They are the specific audience, and we must work out what may also apply to those who come after them, and all the more with the stuff that we're discussing today. Now, the discourse began in John 13, 31 through 14, 14, uh, by talking about Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, He talked about how he was going to be glorified, because he was going to be glorified he gave them a new command to love one another as he had loved them, that they will be known as his disciples by their love for one another in John 13, 31 through 35. He says he's going to be leaving them and explains why, that he was going to prepare a place for them in the house of the Father uh, and they would know the way to be with him. The disciples said they didn't know the way and he said, no, you do know the way because I am the way, the truth, and the life and that he is the way to the Father, that he has in fact been the embodiment of the Father to them and thus they are able to know him. Now, throughout his final discourse, Jesus is trying to reassure the disciples that even though he's leaving, God's presence will not leave them. That God, he will have self-presence with them in their midst by promising, in the English Standard Version, the helper, also known as a comforter, the Greek word parakletos. Uh, Sometimes you hear the paraclete, that who is who we're talking about, the Holy Spirit. And so he has established himself as the way, the truth, and the life. That he would prepare a place for the disciples. He's now going to talk about this comforter in John 14, 15 through 31. And it will be mentioned at other times. Uh, the promise is also in John 15, 26 to 27, notably. But the theme is again picked up in detail as we read in John 16, 4 through 15. And so the fact that he is using this theme twice in this discourse emphasizes, underscores its importance. And that's why we do well to explore what he's trying to say in it. So we begin back in John 14. Uh, We need to always keep in mind the general outline of what Jesus is trying to say, uh, not lose uh, what he's trying to say in the details of figuring out what's going on in it. Jesus has told him he's going to leave them. He's explained why. Now he's going to reassure them that they're not going to be abandoned. That if they love Jesus, they will keep his commandments and he will send to them a, as we're going to see, a parakletos, the comforter. Before that, even just that that comment, then verse 15, if you will love me, you'll keep my commandments. Um... This is a theme in John. Uh, John 14, 21, 15, 10. It's also in 1 John 2, 3 and 4, 3, 22 through 24. Chapter 5, 2 and 3, 2 John 1, 6. It's in Revelation 12, 17 and 14, 12 as well. Uh, we've already seen earlier the command, John 31 through 35, 13, chapter 13, that they're to love one another as Jesus loved them. And it shows that love and obedience are not in conflict, but they're complementary. Um, and it helps us not lose sight of what Jesus is doing. There is a promise to come. The promise is dependent upon commitment and relationship and also faithfulness. That is, this is all not disconnected. And too many times we allow it to get disconnected. So Jesus is going to ask the Father, and he will send, and it's very interesting to note here, another parakletos, another helper, another comforter, who is identified as the spirit of truth, what the world does not know and cannot know, but the disciples will know because he's going to abide in and with them. So yes, this word comforter is parakletos. It means intercessor, advocate, comforter, helper, counselor. Another comforter indicates they already have had one comforter who is Jesus himself. Uh, the comforter, the helper here, is identified as the spirit of truth, which is the Holy Spirit, as we will see. 
And he's not just going to abide among the disciples, but Jesus says explicitly he will abide in them. Something worth pointing out here that often gets missed. A lot of people kind of conflate a lot of the terms used to describe Jesus uh, and kind of say mediation and intercession are the same thing. Uh, there's a difference between mediation and inter intercession. Yes, in 1 Timothy 2.5, Jesus is our only mediator. He's the only mediator because he is both God and man, and he shares in both natures, and that is how he's able to reconcile the two within himself. Intercessor is somebody who speaks on behalf of another. Mediator stands between two people. So Jesus has been a parakletos by the fact that he says another one is coming. So he's already been somebody who advocates and who intercedes. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, uh, Paul encourages that all in intercessions on behalf of all men, that Christians are to pray, intercede for one another. In Romans 8, Paul will talk about the, the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, mediation and intercession are, are different things. In Jesus, they are complementary. He is both our mediator and our advocate and intercessor. The Holy That doesn't stop the Holy Spirit from being an intercessor as well. And it does not stop the Holy Spirit from being the parakletos here. And we need to make sure that we, we have that understanding. Uh, sometimes that gets messed up. But Jesus assures the disciples that he will not leave them as orphans. He's going to come to them. The world will no longer see him, but the disciples will. And they will know that Jesus is in the Father, and the disciples are in Jesus, and Jesus is in them. And those who love Jesus are those uh, who has and keeps his commandments. And the one who loves Jesus, the Father loves. And Jesus is going to manifest himself to them in verses uh, 18 through 21. Now what's Jesus referring to here? At some level, he must be referring to his death and resurrection. But what else is going on there? And we can we have to put off the question for a moment because Jesus is going to explain himself. But we need to see the affirmation of the promise. Jesus is not going to ban his disciples. He will be with them. How does that work? What does that look like? We're not sure yet, but he says that's what's going to happen. And on account of what will happen, they're going to understand this relational unity. You will know that I am in the, my Father, and you and me and I in you. This interconnectedness, the, what we call perichoretic relational unity. Perichoresis being uh, interpenetration, mutual interpenetration without loss of distinctiveness. Um, and that's really core here. We've already seen that a little bit in John chapter uh, 13, verse 14. Uh, we're seeing it here. Uh, and it's going to connect again with John 17, 20 through 23 as we're going to see. Relational unity is not independent of action, however. The expectation of obedience remains, but it's not just kind of obedience by rote or by a standard code. The idea of the obedience is it's within relational unity uh, that that obedience takes place. And, and it demonstrates something when it's done in relational unity. And we can only really get that in Jesus himself. And so, again, yeah, a lot of times there have been a lot of arguments about these kind of things, people going either or when it's really a both and, and missing half the point by focusing too much on the other half. We need to be careful about that. Now, at this point, Judas, who is not Iscariot, John wants us to be very clear, is the other Judas, um, has a question, very perceptive question. How will you manifest yourself to us but not to the world? How will we see you but the world won't see you? And Jesus clarifies your answers by declaring that whoever loves Jesus will keep his word. The Father will love him, and the Father and Son will come and make their abode with him. But those who do not love Jesus will not keep his words and he wants to emphasize uh, that those words actually aren't his. They're the words of the Father. 
Now, in a very real sense, Jesus accomplished this in his resurrection, because we, we hear in the end of the Gospels, in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus will make himself known, he will appear in the resurrection to the apostles, to the women, to 500 brethren at once, but he's not showing himself to everybody in the world. But this is not what Jesus says. Okay, It's true, but it's not what Jesus says. That's not his answer. His answer is not envisioning the resurrection appearance. He's not saying those aren't important. But he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, my father love him, and we will make our abode with him. We will make our home with them in John 14, 23. That abode is that Greek word monai, which is used also in John 14, 2. In my father's house are many rooms, many monai, and I go to prepare a place for you. So in a very real way, Jesus is affirming that his death will provide access for those who obey him to maintain relational unity with the Father and the Son, and they're going to dwell in the house of God, the household of God, now and forever, as we see in Ephesians 2, 1 Timothy 3, 15. But Jesus says the Father and Son will make their home with the believer, not the other way around. This is not disconnected from the promise of the Comforter that is going on throughout this whole passage. In John 14, 16 through 17, again in verse 26, and in chapter 16, the Father and Son abide in with the believer through the Spirit. This is something that is not explicit here, but has been made explicit in other places. In Romans 8, 9 through 11, we see an interconnectedness that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, 6, 19 through 20, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, and 1 Peter 2, 3 through 9, there's a persistent metaphor that believers, as both individuals and as a group, are temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells in them. And the idea there is that the presence of God in the temple, the representative dwelling of God, the presence of God here is manifest in the Spirit, that God is with his people when he is in his temple. God is with his people in the form of the Holy Spirit within them. In 2 Corinthians 5, 5 and Ephesians 1, 13, the presence of the Spirit is in fact considered the down payment of salvation from God. And so this is how Jesus in verse 23 is explaining what he said in verses 18 through 21 and why he's brought up the comforter in 16 and 17. He's going to maintain his presence with the disciples through the abiding and dwelling of the comforter, the Holy Spirit of God. That is how he is not going to leave them as orphans. He will be with them and he will stay with them by means of the Spirit. That is how they are not left as orphans. And at the end here, Jesus has this, 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 again, when it comes to keeping his word and those who don't keep his word, he, he does this often. He will say, it's not just my, it's not my word, really, it's the word of the Father. Uh, he's not acting on his own initiative, but he's acting according to the will of God. And he always wants to kind of underscore that. That's, you know, when you're disagreeing with Jesus, it's not that you're disagreeing with Jesus here. It, it all comes back to the Father and the purposes of God. Now, beginning in verse 25, uh, verse through the rest of the chapter, uh, Jesus has said these things while he remains among the disciples. But he then says, the comfort, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who is going to be sent by the Father in the name of Jesus, is going to teach them all things, to bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus had said to them, in verse 25 and 26. Now, Jesus is not really changing subjects here, is he? No, he's explaining all that the Comforter's presence involves. Uh, here we see the explicit association between the Comfort and the Holy Spirit, not just the Spirit truth, but he's the Holy Spirit here. And what it means to teach them all things will be further explained, as we're going to see in chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. But that word that he uses, bringing remembrance, is of great importance, because it's something unique to the apostles. It would be something of great assurance and comfort to them, but also to us. 
because they would have the strength to remember the things that Jesus had taught them. And we have the assurance that when they have written down things or proclaimed things, that yes, indeed, uh, this is what Jesus said. Well, their memories might have been, been hazy. They may not have understood it all. Well, they didn't understand it all when it was said, but the Spirit has given them remembrance so that they can uh, make it known and explain it to us now, as we see in the Scriptures. And that's very important. And they communicated to people in that generation who communicated to people in successive generations down to us, uh, fulfilling Second Timothy 2.2, and that is our job as we continue. Now, on the side, there's a really big theological controversy that's existed for uh, over a millennium now over whether the Spirit proceeds only from the Father, which is something that is the Eastern Orthodox belief based on the original wording of the Nicene Creed, or he proceeds from the Father and the Son, which is what Roman Catholicism and much of Western Christianity is taught uh, based upon the addition of uh, a Latin word filioque and the Son to the Nicene Creed. Uh, the service meaning of the text would favor the former, the idea that it's just from the Father, but the, theologically, the, the idea of the Father and the Son has strong merit as well. It's definitely not our intention here to kind of wade into that particular controversy, but just to identify that it is, does exist, and it is centered in a lot of the things that Jesus says here in his final discourse. Jesus very powerfully says he leaves them with his peace. This peace is not the peace the world gives, but the peace he gives, and their hearts therefore should not be troubled or afraid. Peace in the world is absence of hostility. In Christ, in Ephesians 2, peace is killing hostility. It reconciles God and man, and man to one another. Uh, in the world, peace just means, all right, we're not going to, we're not at war right now, but war could always restart. Uh, in Christ, that peace has killed the, the source of the hostility, the hatred, so that there would be no war, no conflict. Uh, the peace from Christ can calm the heart and relieve anxiety, not because the cause of anxiety are eliminated, but because we are putting our trust in the God who has all control, not us. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And um, it's important to note that, again, the most constant command in the scripture is do not fear. And the disciples are about to have a lot of reasons to fear, because there's going to be a big trial coming for the disciples. And... Um, there's a reason he has to say these things. And he goes on, if the disciples really love Jesus, then they would rejoice that he's going to depart, because he goes to the Father who is greater than he is. Jesus has spoken these things, so that when they take place, they will have con they will trust and believe that they are as the purposes of God. Uh, he's not going to have very long to talk to them, because the rule of the world is coming. He has nothing in Christ, though. But Jesus does what he does to show the world that he loves the Father and does his commandments. Now, we could read verse 28 as a sharp rebuke, you know, um, it, it, that if you love me, you would have rejoiced, but I don't think that's really what's going on here. It's a way of encouraging them to look at the situation differently. They're very attached to Jesus, and so any word saying he's going to leave would cause them great sorrow. And so he's trying to help them see the silver lining. If they really wanted the best for Jesus, and it's also, ironically, the best for them, even if they don't know it, they would be happy that he would leave to go with the Father because the Father is greater than the Son. Now, this has also led all kinds of theological speculations, but we should resist any impulse to suggest that Jesus is somehow less than God, because he is God, one in relation to you, the Father. Yet within that relationship is a Father and a Son, and a Son of the Father is, by definition, a subordinate position. Um, that subordination, whatever it is, is a matter of role. It's not of nature or substance or essence. And it could only be temporary for certain purposes. First Corinthians 15, 27-28, that God may be all in all. Who knows? 
but um, we shouldn't make too much of it, but we should understand in context that the point is to encourage the disciples to recognize this is all fulfilling the Father's purpose, which they should appreciate. And he says all this in a predictive way. And it will give the disciples reason to believe. So when it all goes crashing down here in a minute or two, uh, they will realize, oh wait, he said this is going to happen. And it may lead them to take some comfort and not do some dumb things. After all, Jesus is aware that as this is all going on, this is important to keep in mind, that if you could dual, you know, dual screen this right here, uh, split screen it, uh, as Jesus is talking with the disciples, Judas is out talking with the chief priests. They're they're gathering the army and the and the and the weapons and the torches, and they're starting to head down to Gethsemane. And so Jesus knows this is all going on, and so he knows that uh, the plot is going on, and this plot is Satan's work. Uh, Satan has no share in Jesus, but is threatened by him is is going on, and that's why Jesus only has a little bit left time to talk with the disciples. Uh, the ruler here is the Greek word archon. Um, it means uh, a ruler, normally. Uh, ruler of the world is Satan in Revelation 12 and 13. Uh, Jesus' suffering and death will stand as testaments to his love uh, of the Father and the fulfillment of the Father's command. Something that Paul uh, Peter will emphasize in Acts 2, that Jesus died by the, the, the foreknowledge and, and predetermination of God. And so Jesus has worked to comfort and assure, assure his disciples they're not going to be abandoned, but he's going to remain with them in the spirit. He has to go to fulfill uh, God's purpose to provide access for them before the Father and his kingdom, um, which is only possible through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And they have to love Jesus uh, by doing his commands and love one another. That's the whole core of what he's tried to say so far. And he has this little aside, time for us to be going. And from this, we're supposed to get the impression that they've always they've been in the upper room this whole time. Now they're leaving the upper room. They're now on the road to Gethsemane for the rest of the discourse. Now we're going to skip ahead a little bit uh, to chapter 16. And um, in, the, in the intermediate part, Jesus would talk about uh, what he said so far with the image of the vine and the branches. That, um, that they would need to love one another again. He warned them of the hatred of the world, the persecution that they would experience. Um, and then he explained that he had said these things now. Uh, he didn't say it from the beginning, when he had time to. Um, but now he's leaving them, and that's why he's telling them. And that's an important perspective on the Gospels in general. Because most of the conversation about his suffering, death, and resurrection only take place after the disciples have confessed that he is the Messiah. And all the more so uh, on the road to Jerusalem for the final Passover. And so yes, there's a predictive function in John 14, 29. Uh, but he's waited for them to be imminent because the time had come on account of his departure. And he declared where he was going. He's going to the one who sent him. Yet the disciples haven't asked him where he's going. They're sorrowful, but it's better that Jesus leaves so the Comforter can come and accomplish his purpose which is to convince the, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, he, it's interesting that he says that none of you ask where I'm going, when G, Simon Peter very explicitly did in John 13, 36, ask where he was going. But Thomas admitted in John 14, 5, they did not know where he was going. I think Jesus is really speaking of this very moment at this time. Not He's not really referring to the question earlier. They didn't qu inquire as to where he was going because they were sorrowful, and the answer wasn't going to make them feel any better. But they shouldn't be sorrowful, Jesus' point is, because a comforter can only come if Jesus departs. So the work of the comforter is making known and convicting, which is Greek eleche, convict, uh, reprove, or rebuke the world in terms of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The conviction of sin, that they did not believe in Jesus, they have transgressed God's purposes, which Jesus had explicitly said to them in John 12, 44 through 50. 
conviction of righteousness. Well, Jesus would die, be raised, and ascend to the Father. He'd be given everlasting dominion as the Son of Man, the fully righteous one. A promise in Daniel 7. Very interestingly, the centurion, uh, having seen all these things of Jesus' death when it happens, will cry out in Luke 23, 47, Truly this man was innocent, uh, de declaring Jesus to be righteous. And the conviction of judgment. The ruler of the world, Satan, has been judged. He's lost his ground of accusation, and his time is short. Revelation 12, 7-12. And all this be proclaimed in the gospel message. And the Comforter would accomplish this work, we're told, uh, through those disciples who would proclaim the gospel of these things, the good news of these things, of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, lordship, and imminent return. And that would be the way that God would save people, in Romans 1, 16. Now, Jesus had a lot of things he said he needed to tell them, but they couldn't bear them. But the Spirit of Truth would guide them into the truth. because Not because not he speaks from himself, but what he's heard from the Father, he will speak. Glorifying Jesus, because he would take from Jesus to give to them the things that are really the Father's, because whatever the Father has is, from, is Jesus's. And Jesus wasn't lying here. The disciples were in no condition to understand the nature and demands of the kingdom that Jesus was inaugurating his blood. Very manifest in the way Peter acted with his denials. Uh, again, we beat up Peter so much. The reason that's in every story is to remind us just how unformed the disciples really are. They just don't really get it yet. At the right time, though, the Spirit of Truth would guide the disciples in all truth, declaring to them what was and would be. And so here we have reason to accept and recognize it would be a progressive revelation of the mystery that God accomplished in Christ to the disciples. First, it would be in terms of Israel. Uh, but then also in terms of incorporating the Gentiles in Acts 2 uh, through 11 and then Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. Uh, the progressive revelation has ended at the end of the first century because Jude says that ever, you know, they had delivered once for all to the saints the things that, that God had made known, but it, it took time for it to be manifest as it was taking place. And Jesus' words come from the Father, and the words of the Spirit come from the Father. And it's this way that Jesus encourages and exhorts his disciples through the promise of the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the work he would accomplish in them. Now, this means we now need to talk about what does this mean for us today? Because Jesus says these things to the eleven. He promised them that he, they would receive the Spirit, the Spirit would abide in with them, and would guide them into all truth, and he would remind them all the things that he taught them. Now, there's so much controversy here because everybody seems to go to extremes. On one extreme, there's a lot of people, especially in the evangelical world, will recognize almost little to no distinction between the immediate audience of the disciples and application to all Christians. And therefore, they'll be more than happy to quote anything Jesus says about the Comforter in, in these passages and just act as if that is true for us as it is for the, Christ, the, the apostles. And the other extreme, and, and most likely in reaction to these evangelicals, many among us would make a complete distinction between the audience of the disciples and uh, application to Christians, considered everything promised here to the Comforter only to refer to the eleven and having no relevance to the Christian today. Now, to make effective application, we need to see what things might be contextually specific and what might have greater application based on other references. Because, yes, Jesus is sorry, John is communicating the specific words that Jesus said to the eleven disciples before his death in order to prepare them. It's very contextual in that way. On the other hand, John could have just passed over them and Jesus exhorted them in many things that he was going to do for them and assured them and go right into the story of his death. He doesn't do that. He actually explicitly lays out all of these things. They have to have some relevance to his audience. Now, some of what Jesus says is purely contextual. 
No matter what, the Spirit cannot bring to our remembrance the things that Jesus taught us, because we were not there to hear what Jesus taught originally, like in John 14, 26. In this way, we gain from what the Comforter has already said and done in convicting the world about sin and righteousness and judgment in the proclamation of the Gospel by the Apostles in John 16, 4-15. And we bear witness to the world today of what the Apostles bore witness to through the Spirit. But much of what John says in John 14, 15-31 about the Comforter will be said in other passages in the New Testament about all Christians. The Spirit abides with and in the disciples in John 14, 17, right? But the believers are the temples of the Holy Spirit in whom he dwells in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, 6, 19 through 20, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, and 1 Peter 2, 3 through 9. In that day, the disciples, the eleven, would know Jesus and the Father, and they are in Jesus and Jesus and them in John 14, 20. But Jesus would pray not just for the eleven explicitly, but for all who would believe in Jesus based on their word, that they would be one in the Father and the Son as the Son and the Father on one another in John 17, 20 through 23. Even in the words being used in John 14, in verse 21, Jesus says, In that day you will know I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loved me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Judas asks his question, and then Jesus again says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. In both of those verses there, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father and I will dwell with him. That already is universal language. It's not just about the eleven. If anyone, whoever, this is much wider language. The peace of Christ, which he gives to his disciples in John 14, 28, is promised by Paul for believers in Philippi, in Philippians 4, 6-7. And so, a lot of these promises that Jesus did make regard to the Comforter, are specific to the eleven disciples. Many aspects of the promise of the Comforter is still part of God's purposes in Christ for all believers. And the promise of the Comforter is something that's part of God's purposes in Christ for all believers. Because we are not orphans in the world. God has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who believe in Acts 2, 38 and 39. It's the guarantee of our salvation in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 and Ephesians 1, 13. And it's his presence, which is the manifestation of the relational unity that we have now accessed with the Father and the Son, the abiding of God with us in all these passages we've mentioned. God's promise of the Spirit is not designed to exasperate, to divide, or to cause confusion. It's to be quite the opposite. We are to be one body in the Spirit, to maintain the unity of that Spirit, and to receive comfort and assurance from the presence of the Spirit and the conviction of the truth of what He's made known in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Ephesians 3, 4, 3, and many other passages. When preconceived expectations of associating the Word with the Spirit are removed, one can see how, in fact, the whole tenor of the uh, New Testament is the work of the Spirit in and among believers. That's the main contrast with what became before the Old Covenant. It's a source of strength and life in Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 1 and 3. Now, this view of the Spirit does not lessen or deny the power and importance of the revelation through the apostles in the Scriptures. It does not suggest that that activity of making known the, the Word of God is still ongoing. The work of prophecy, speaking tongues, and knowledge is stopped in 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. But we recognize that the Holy Spirit has a purpose in the New Covenant beyond just revealing information. He is another intercessor. He's an advocate. He's a counselor. He's a comforter. His presence in and among us is a manifestation of God's continued presence with us because we are not abandoned to the world, but we are to endure in Him. We don't have the fullness of that promise yet, but we have the down payment of it. We have it now, but we do not have its fullness yet, and we are waiting for its fullness. But in the present, we have not been left as orphans. 
God maintains his presence with us in the Spirit. We should not neglect the promise of peace in light of the promise of the comfort in John 14, 27, because the presence of the Spirit can comfort and assure, but it's the peace of Christ that's also necessary for comfort and assurance. It's the death of hostility between God and us and among one another, and it's also our trust in God who controls all things in Ephesians 2 and Philippians 4. It's very hard for a lot of us to accept the gracious gift of God, that God's love isn't based on our performance, that God's love existed before our performance was possible, before we were even born. That Jesus has secured our reconciliation. Not because anything we've done to deserve it, but because God has shown gracious care in Romans 5, 6-11. That, that it's the hardest thing to believe that God loves me. God loves me despite my performance. And it's something that we have to, to, to really deal with inside ourselves. If we trust in the peace of God in Christ, we're not going to let anything divide us. Because there's nothing that can divide us in the world that is as great as the unity we're to share in the Spirit of God in Ephesians 4 3. In Ephesians 3 1 through 7. But if we're going to have that peace, we have to give up the control that we maintain in our anxieties and our fears. We need to live in full trust that we are in God and God is in us, and we need to live accordingly, uh, in boldness and in, in, in Him. Because we're very easily consumed in fear and anxiety and in hostility. But the only way out is faith in God in Christ. There's also a small thing in this passage that Jesus speaking of Satan as a ruler of this world, but in a poignant way. That the ruler of the world has his way in Jesus. He's going to have his way of Jesus, but the, he has nothing in Jesus. In John 14, 30. Now, other passages emphasize the stark contrast between the way of God in Christ and the ways of the evil one. You know, it's a slave of sin or slave of righteousness. Uh, there's the wisdom from above and the demonic wisdom from beneath. There's, you know, you love the world or you love the Father in 1 John 2. But Satan has nothing in Jesus. Everything that Jesus is about is contrary to what Satan is after. And that therefore, as a people of God, we have to completely avoid the ways of the devil, because if it's of him, it has nothing to do with Jesus. Now, if there's a person who claims to be able to help us or a champion our cause, but he's manifestly ensnared with the, in the evil one, he has nothing in Jesus. And we need to remember that and put our trust only in God in Christ. And again, we shouldn't neglect that in this discourse where Jesus is, is, is really focusing on relational unity. And the whole thing has been framed so far to say, I am doing this so that you have access to God, that you can be one with us and we with you and you can love one another, and you can manifest my purposes here, and you're not going to be abandoned because we're going to, we'll manifest our presence in your life in the Spirit. All of this pointing toward relational union, relationship, is not divorced from fulfilling the commandments. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In John 14, 30-31, he fulfills the commandments of the Father. Uh, you demonstrate your love for Jesus by keeping his commandments and his word. If you love me, you'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is not insisting on commandments for their own sake. This is not authoritarianism. This is not works righteousness. But it's in the context of that relationship in God and Christ. They are his commandments. They demand the love of one another as Jesus has loved us. It is to embody who God is. But they are commandments. We must have and keep Jesus' words and commandments if we're going to receive the Comforter 
and begin sharing relational unity with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and maintain it for eternity. And again, we get this bifurcation, where you get people focusing so much on doing the work that they miss that it's in a context of relationship. And they try to kind of establish works righteousness or establish, we do these things, so these are the rules that we've been given. Uh, come, as if it, you know, whether it's from Christ or somebody else, doesn't even seem to matter. And that's going to lead to utter failure because it's not motivated properly, it's not directed properly, and it's not in the right place. On the other hand, we can get so focused on the relationship and say, well, it's nothing that we deserve. It's, it's nothing that we've earned. And we get ourselves in a position of, of enjoying the relationship and then thinking we don't have to do anything because we're in the relationship. And that, of course, has been the flaw of all the people of God since uh, Israel in, in the long past, uh, in the wilderness, no less. Well, God is not a respected persons. We aren't in the relationship because of how great we are. But that means that we need to become more like him. It all flows very naturally and easily when you think about it. If you're going to be in God in Christ, you need to be like God in Christ. And therefore you must manifest the holiness and righteousness which consists with his purposes that he will empower you to do in the spirit. Through what he's made known in the word. That is why these things are not either or. They're both and. Yes, we need to be obedient, but we're obedient in Christ. It is empowered and strengthened that relational unity uh, and allowed by that relational unity. It, it all works together. And therefore, let us trust in God, in Jesus. Let us put our trust in him by doing what he has said, that we may obtain the comforter, we may obtain that assurance and that presence, and be empowered to become more like him, to share in relational unity with him forever. We're again so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you've been encouraged by this. If you have, we encourage you to share this message with friends and family and others on social media. If there's any way we can be of service, please let us know by reaching out to us uh, at our website, thatischurchofchrist.org, or on social media. Or if I can be of service, please reach me at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.